with Christ and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And in that unity, in that brotherhood, is, is the strength necessary to be victorious, to live an overcoming life. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace and your love. We thank you, I thank you as a Christian person who acknowledges that there is goodness in the one true and living God. I acknowledge that you are God in the person of Jesus Christ. I acknowledge these things because I have a high view of your word by your grace. That your word is meaningful, that it's always true, that it's without contradiction. I thank you, Lord, that this word has been offered, has been presented by the sacrifice of men for centuries who gave their lives to prophesy as a person who has been changed by the grace of God. The prophets of old who gave themselves in, in, uh, in persecution to their, by their own people, who resisted and who rejected your holy word because it wasn't what they wanted to hear. And to this very day, now that the gospel's gone into all the world, by, into all nations and People prophesy and they speak that word that is written, that is authentic, and they receive persecution more often than not. We recognize these realities and I pray that you would give grace as I speak. Take me out of the way <clears throat> that people might see Jesus Christ. I ask these things, these things in his precious and holy name. Amen. The uh, name of this message, if that's what we want to call it, or this testimony that I'm going to be sharing, is a testimony of joy. And it's uh, assorted scriptures, but the main scripture is uh, first is John, uh, the gospel of John in, in, verses, in chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. But before that, I want to share a word of testimony uh, about expectations that I got from a brother not too long ago who while we were talking said to me in a, in a very uh, encouraging and loving way, um, Joe, you might want to consider perhaps lowering your expectations on the church. And this is, I must admit, it was uh, a revelation to me, um, which I've given so much counsel for so long uh, about expectations. But at the same time, I don't think I ever really thought of it in terms of, of the church. Sometimes I can be just really dense. Um, but it was always a good word. It was a word from God. Why? Because expectations, it's easy to put expectations on other people, on situations, whatever it might be, and at the same time be hurting ourselves because our expectations are just, they're not going to be met. And then we feel let down or we get discouraged or 
whatever it may be, which is in a very negative. Uh, at the same time, it's easy to enter into judgment on the person or the thing uh, where really it, it, we don't have a right to do that. So that being said, I have sought to find the proper balance between being discerning in life, and this is always the, the struggle for me, probably for many, of be, to be discerning, to understand the difference between right and wrong in a thing, and uh, to overstep that and, and place a judgment on it, which really belongs to God alone. And much, so much said about do not judge, not quite as much about how important it is to be discerning in things. And, you know, the, 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 the thing that hits me, which another brother uh, explained, I'll share, but, you know, which is this matter of joy. Brother shared uh, then a f- couple of weeks later that, you know, it's, it's one thing to be discerning, but discerning when you notice things that shouldn't be. Or, you know, you, you, you understand what should be, and, it's, uh, and then, you know, you get aggravated, or you get annoyed, you get angry. And living in anger is bad. And so this other brother said to me, you know, it's, it, it, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And that, that's the reality that is, it's almost overwhelming how that the joy of the Lord is, a, is our strength. And that joy is, is just that. And without it, we, we become weak. And so it's necessary to walk in joy to have strength as well as, you know, to just to be happy. Happy is related to circumstance and real joy is not related to circumstance. And I'm going to go into what it is related to. And there's different perspectives on all this. I'm not giving the whole picture. Joy is, is also re, uh, related to seeing things in the future as what they will be. And there's where hope arises. And, and hope, hope can really make a person joyful. Where, where there's no hope, I mean, it can just destroy you. But joy is essential to overcoming the world, the flesh, and the devil for the Christian. Joy results from abiding in Jesus Christ. Joy is the fruit of death to self. I'm giving some reasons what joy really is. And acknowledgement, joy is the fruit of death to self, where we don't, we're not self-centered. Self-centered is destructive. And acknowledgement of our sin and shame. Joy in the fruit of living a selfless life where Christ is the vine and we are the branches, where Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith, where joy is the fruit of our God-given faith. Now these, uh, these all flow out of the scriptures, but they're related to a person and their testimony. Every person's testimony isn't exactly the same who's a true believer, but they have to be similar if each one is a Christian. And uh, in my own testimony, the the big struggle has been between the balancing beam between truth and compromise. Compromise being evil, truth being pure and uh, impure, not being impure because it also has within it things that are are wrong. Um, Love, when thought of as compromise, is deadly. 
Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, we, we need to be kind-hearted, we need to be understanding, we, we need to be empathetic and sympathetic, and all of those attributes of that kind of kindness that love produces can be deadly when it, it eliminates truth or it's not really growing out of truth. Truth gives love stability, direction, purpose, motiv- proper motivation, which is to love God because God is truth as much as he is love. I mean, in both ways, God is truth and God is love. Or he's the source of truth and he's the source of love, spoken better that way. God is love. Love is not God. That's the wrong way of looking at those. That's why it's, you look at it as God is the source. He's a person. And in his personhood is eternal, uh, everywhere present, all-powerful, all-knowing God that he is. He produces characteristics that he has made known, made known as in love and truth. Now, I'm going to share my testimony in, in an effort to understand my, my path to truth without compromise and uh, this matter of obtaining joy and discernment. Um, I was brought up in the Roman Catholic Church, and I found myself in 1967 watching Billy Graham on TV. And uh, after listening to his message, became just heavy laden with my sin and my shame for my sin and an awareness that I had not had previously. Of course, guilt, yes. Um, By this time, I'm like 14 years old. And when you do something wrong, if you're aware that it's wrong, it, it brings guilt or shame. Um, but this was a whole different uh, matter. This was, isn't, wasn't just in my conscience. This was the Holy Spirit bringing conviction of sin to me. And it brought a heaviness and an awareness that was beyond anything I had experienced before that time. So after listening to him, I went into my bedroom. I looked up to the ceiling. And, and I just said to me, Lord, help me. I didn't understand a whole lot, but I understood I was a sinner. I understood I needed a Savior. And with that uh, confession of faith, with a, a desire to, for things to be different, I came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I was not counseled, not knowing a Christian, and only having heard the message on the TV by Billy Graham, uh, to abandon uh, false religions, whatever they might be, and adhere only to the Bible and the truth of the Word of God. And uh, that being the case, I remained for six years um, in the Roman Catholic Church, and sin was curtailed, to be sure, during my high school years. And when people were getting into all kinds of drugs and things, I, I didn't, by the grace of God, But then after that period of time, um, not having grown, having never read past Genesis 5 or or Matthew 1, where I just reading in these, uh, the genealogies, and it was like, you know, just, it was so heavy. And I I gave up. I take responsibility of that because I did give up um, what was written in the scriptures. And as a result of that, got into sin to a, a degree of committing sin, not just in my mind and in my heart, which was sin, but uh, 
and I, I really did think about suicide. And the conviction was awful. It was it was horrible. And, and at that point, I was brought to a, a greater realization of sin that I had than I had as a fourteen-year-old. And I recognized the sovereignty of God, and I recognized my wickedness to such a greater degree. And I was sent by the Billy Graham organization to Calvary Baptist Church in Manhattan. I went there, met with uh, one of the pastors there, and um, I heard what he said, and I went back numerous times, and uh, I just, you know, he didn't leave me with an option. It was forsake sin, repent of sin, and live for God. And in time, I found a another church in New York, in Brooklyn, and began to attend there, and I began to get cleansed through the Word. I began to understand the Word like I never did before. I read Romans, and I saw in Romans there that it was in the past tense, and I became, I went beyond conviction of sin to a cleansing and a justification by faith alone, and in terms which I was beginning to grasp and understand uh, and the sovereignty of God in salvation and the grace of God in salvation and but it was at an elementary level and it, it was didn't have real depth of understanding there was definitely understanding far before beyond what I had known from my 14th year um, but then uh, I began to understand the sovereignty of God and I heard uh, a hyper-Calvinist teaching on the radio. And hyper-Calvinism is not good. Calvinism uh, goes into the idea that God saves people who can't save themselves. I mean, everyone who preaches the gospel, who says they preach the gospel, who are evangelical, who are born-again believers... They have this notion that they can't save themselves. But what happened to me during those years before I really began to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ was that I was in control uh, far beyond what I was meant to be in control. I was doing my own thing. I was really wasn't connected to Christ in a way with understanding. And understanding can only come through a proper understanding of the Word of God, because only the meaning of the Scriptures is the Scriptures. You know, you can put two verses together, you can say, John went out and hung himself, and then you can take another verse that says, you go out and do likewise, and those don't, they're not meant to be connected, there's no reasoning between connecting those two, and never being told to commit suicide, you know, it's, it's not Scripture. Now, they're both Scripture verses, but poorly used, badly used, wrongfully used. And so I didn't have that kind of education in the scripture where I was catching the true meaning of the scripture. Now I was understood um, and from a Calvinist point of view the, the understanding that I could not save myself, that I was lost, that I had actually gone to the place of striking the rock twice, so to speak, or offending Christ twice by having been lost, God bringing me into the kingdom and then living off the energies of the flesh without understanding the word of God, 
without a meaningful prayer life, without submitting to the will of God, as I began to understand what the Bible said, I didn't have any of that. Not making excuses, just explaining that's where I was during those years of my life. And so when I was brought to a new awareness through the scriptures as I started to read and study, through the testimony and the uh, teaching uh, from a church that was understood in the meaning of the scriptures, then I began to grow and I began to understand in a Calvinistic way. And I mean that by it wasn't all laid on my shoulders and I had to make these choices, but it was rather God's grace working in me. Then in the late 70s, I came to go to a Bible school, Bible Institute, and in that Bible Institute, I was taught well by men who were godly men, men who had been missionaries on the mission field in Sudan, with a Sudan Interior Mission, working with lepers and, and other people groups, and they, they, they were godly. Uh, only a godly man can really discern a godly person from just a mere religious person. These were not merely religious people. These were men dedicated to the point of they would have lost their lives for Christ, saw people lose their lives for Christ, and were committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ as it is written in the scriptures. Now, they weren't full Calvinists. They were, as the dean put it, a three and a half kind of point Calvinist. They weren't big on limited atonement. And, and there was issues with um, some of the Calvinist doctrines. And so I got carried away having placed my eyes on godly men who, uh, not for me to judge these men, um, but I lost some of that awareness, not of my sinfulness, I, I could still be convicted by the Holy Spirit, but it, it placed it more on my shoulders by my, the exercise of my quote-unquote free will. And for about 18 years, I was dwarfed, I believe, as a Christian, and I was hindered in my walk with Christ. It took Romans 5 through 8, distorted Romans 5 to 8, Romans 7, 14 through 25. If you want to look these scriptures up, come back, listen to this, write them down. You know, that time, places where in the scripture where, you know, it, it can be interpreted one of two ways. Here we go. You know, either the way God means it or the way we understand it, either me and my efforts or God and his efforts through me. And those are two completely ways of living life. One is entirely Christian, and the other at best is a mixture of the flesh and the spirit. Um, and being freed from that didn't happen until the 90s for me, when I was set free in the truth to understand what I want to share with you today. And But there was an ongoing battle, and still is, between uh, these two fronts, one of truth and the other of love, and where that balances. And Christians, we all, if you're truly a Christian, you have a, a struggle to discern the battle between truth and love, and how to act in truth and love. And, you know, to, uh, an observation would be, or an example would be in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, Matthew 18, uh, other places throughout the New Testament where we're called to be responsible to one another within the church. 
where if you see a brother sinning or a brother sins against you, and in these places, we are to hold each other accountable, to help, to encourage, to comfort, you know, to build up, to edify. How? Why? Because like what I went through at the age of 14, where I was helpless. And we, we don't, not meant to go through the Christian walk alone. We're meant to walk with Christ and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And in that unity, in that brotherhood, is, is the strength necessary to be victorious, to live an overcoming life. So abiding in Christ and his joy make us complete. Abiding in Christ and his joy is made complete when we abide in Christ would be a better way to put it. So in John 15, 1 through 11, to give more understanding to what I have been through and how I got to where I was, it says this, 1 through 11, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser or the caretaker. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you, just as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, but must remain in the vine. So neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, the one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's thrown away like a branch and dries up. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as my Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Now, as we go through this, I'm going to take it verse by verse, give a brief explanation of these verses in order to understand where Jesus is going. He's telling this whole matter of what takes place with the vine and the branches and the abiding and the connectedness between the unity, between Jesus and ourselves, between him and the Father, all for this reason. And the reason is about having joy. And since joy is our strength and our ability to overcome the world, the flesh, and the, je- the devil, Jesus is explaining here how we get that joy. Jesus' reason for speaking, verses 1 through 10, is found in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you. He's given us the reason. So that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Made full is play, play row in the Greek, meaning to be full. Or filled to individual capacity. That is to the extent it is appropriate. We are never filled with all of God. 
we are filled with the fullness of God, meaning we are full. Uh, a person cannot, can, that would be like an eyedropper trying to contain the oceans of the world. You know, it's just, it's not going to happen. But a person can be filled with everything necessary to be, to know God, to experience God, to be obedient through God. Um, and this is what he means by, look, this is where we're going. You want joy? You want the joy that makes you happy and contented and peaceful rather than complaining and striving and depressed? The joy comes from being connected to Jesus Christ. To be filled with the Spirit of God, as in Ephesians 5.18, where it says, be not drunk with wine where in his excess, but be filled with the Spirit, is to be completely controlled by God. Not influenced by evil, compromise, or deceived by demons, ourselves, or a well-meaning or not-so-well-meaning brother. You know, to be controlled, to take on the fragrance, uh, to be obedient to God is to be filled with his fullness. Therefore, as we consider Jesus' teaching from verses 1 through 10, we will do so understanding that Jesus' purpose is for a joy that is complete in him. A joy that is complete in him. Jesus begins by saying, I am the true vine. The world is an, is an expression, a symbol of the spiritual world, world where God is the source of all things. The world, you know, I'm looking out my window and I'm seeing trees and grass and they grow. And all things were made by him and in him all things consist. They're held together by God. Because he is the source of all things. As the vine is the source of the branch. And apart from the branch, the brand, apart from the vine, the branch dies. It withers, it shrivels up, it has no life in it apart from the vine. The true vine is the source of eternal life. life. Scientists can explain biological life to a degree. But only a regenerate and spiritual man can accept God as the eternal life. For this reason, John wrote, quote, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was revealed. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These is, this is a, those are verses 1 through 3 from 1 John chapter 1. And then in verse 4, he says, John says it again, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Same idea. Fullness in Christ. Being filled with the life that comes from the vine alone. When we become connected to the eternal life, then joy is possible. The, the disciples walked with Jesus for three years. And like myself, uh, I more like them, 
you know, were torn to shreds when they, they were full of their own knowledge and their own, uh, their own thoughts of who they thought they were. They were going to sit on thrones. They had all these promises were true from Christ, but then they wanted to sit on his right hand and his left hand. They wanted importance. They wanted to be better than one another. They just walked in sin until Christ went to the cross, and then they saw themselves emptied at the cross because they had a fuller awareness of just how wretched and wicked and sinful and unfaithful they were. And that's meant to happen in the life of every Christian. We're not meant uh, to walk in sin and to be full of ourselves, but to be full of the Holy Spirit of God who alone brings joy. The thought of death is depressing. The possibilities or realities of suffering in this world produce sorrow and hopelessness. But eternal life produces joy. Not the thought of eternal life. Not some imaginary eternal life. But true, real, eternal life that comes from being connected to the vine, which in turn produces joy. So let us look at the points between 1 through 10 in, in particular. In verse 1, Jesus is the vine and his father is the caretaker. Between the father, this is important because we're talking about Jesus as the vine and the father, the caretaker. Between the father and the son, there is unity. There's union. There's harmony. There's an eter- eternal abiding which has always been. And this union is what Jesus wants to to see, which is meant to be between us and him. Those who've trusted in Jesus Christ, who've placed all their faith, not in themselves, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we see one, we see the other. When we see the Father, we see Jesus. Jesus said, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How do you ask, do you see the Father? Don't you know, Philip, that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? There's three in one, each one in his own person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, individual in their personhood, but there's only one God. We are who come to Christ meant to have this type of a relationship in eternity. When it's when we're perfected, when we're made complete in And at the time of the new heaven and the new earth, at the second resurrection, and the new bodies that come out of the new heaven and the new earth, this is the, the relationship that God has designed for us to have. Two, but one. We see that in the marriage relationship where the two are to be one flesh, um, ordained as a, as a picture. Not to the extent, of course, that men will be one with God, but one is a picture where two people share life together, share the bringing forth of life in in the birth of new children, the sharing of home and suffering and and joy and and all of it in in a oneness. Fruit-bearing is an essential element of salvation in verse 2. Otherwise, there is no connection between Christ and the believer only in the bearing of fruit. Therefore, if there is no fruit, the branch is taken away, as stated in that verse. Those who bear fruit, 
um, by the caretaker are pruned to bring forth more fruit. We are created in Christ to produce fruit, Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That conformity to that image is, is in the bearing of fruit. If there is one thing Jesus does is he produces fruit. He's the author of fruit. He's the source of fruit. So in verse 2, let me go back and read that. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So those who are just professors, they say they're in Jesus, they say they believe in Jesus, but they're not really in Jesus. Those are taken away. But those who are really in Jesus... They come to bear fruit. And that fruit bearing is essential, um, not in, as a means of, but as a result of being connected to Christ and as, as a fruit bearer. Verse 3, we are already clean by the word. This is the doctrine of justification. It's something that's done by God in us. It's, uh, it's done in the, in the courtroom of God. It's done in reality, in God's heart, which is really the only thing that matters. And so there's a cleansing that takes place. He sees it, he recognizes it, he knows those who are his. And so when he sees the Christ, he sees the believer in Christ. Covered, cleansed, made pure and holy. Not in practice, but in, in, uh, in justification. In his in mind, when the Christian uh, passes from this life into the next, he's made completely pure and and perfect at that point, um, according to the scriptures. But in this life, there is there is imperfection. In verse four, we are then admonished to remain in Christ. So the cleansing is take place. We are responsible to God to live godly lives for this purpose. We have been created as in Romans 8.29, um, to be made in the image of Christ, and therefore we admonished to remain there, to remain in Christ. Not go off and just live life in our own head, in our own mind, in our own heart, as we see fit. No, it's to be in prayerful communion with God daily, rise early, start with God, pray, and in that condition, in that place, Live in Christ. The believer's will is set free at salvation. It is not an act of the believer's will prior to salvation, but post-salvation it becomes a dual decision because we've been set free. Now, let me explain it two ways. Number one, um, we are set free because of a love for God. Prior to salvation, there's no love for God. We're told, as in Romans 3, that we hate God and in Timothy, we're told by Paul, haters of God. That's the condition of the world. We've been severed from God uh, when, when Adam fell in the garden. Uh, he had gone making fig leaves and he's running away from God. There's a distance. Why? Because God will have nothing to do with sin. His grace saves sinners. By his grace, come pe people come to know God. They come to know God through Jesus Christ and the offering there. But apart from that, there's, there's distance. There's a barrier. Now, a person who understands the depravity of men, the wretchedness of men, the wickedness of men, not in a way like, yeah, you know, we're kind of bad. 
not in what kind of good. You know, now I understand that that's the way we appear with all our hypocrisy and our cultural uh, understanding of how we should live and uh, uh, some fear of God that's placed there by religions and, you know, the gods and all of that being true and that being the way people live, we give off an appearance of being really better than we are. I know people... A lot of people in the church today wouldn't want to hear this because we're made in the image of God, but that, that's a, a broken image. It's more broken and more devastated than most many Christians are willing to acknowledge, let alone people in the world. People in the world think they're good. You know, Convincing a person that they're wicked and wretched is the stumbling block of the cross and of the gospel. No one wants to recognize they're bad. They were trying to be good. But the reality is we are idol worshipers. And as Calvin put it, you know, we're an idol factory. That's what we do. We make idols all the time. So salvation begins when we're given a new heart, according to Hebrews 8 and 10 and Ezekiel, um, when God comes and takes the heart of stone out of our flesh and he places a heart of flesh in our, in our bodies, in our, in our souls. And so we begin to love God. That's the beginning of our will being set free. Before that, we can't make not only a good choice, but a good choice for the right reason out of a love for God. That's big. That's huge. So in Philippians chapter 2, we're exhorted by Paul, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Well, he says, for it is God who, has wor- who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, the person who's come to Christ has been set free by the giving of God by his grace and his sovereign choice to choose a person to come to salvation and, and place, do this by placing a heart capable of exercising godly faith. Now, hear this. God is not unjust if he were to condemn the whole world and send everyone to hell. This is something an unsaved person and a very badly confused Christian, which I was for 18 years, um, doesn't understand. In my, in my heart, I knew, and I would say things like freedom, free will is an illusion, you know, because I knew in my heart, even before I, I came to a full understanding of what the scripture is talking about, that uh, man is wicked. I was wicked. I, I, I am still wicked, if not controlled by the spirit of the living God. There's a, a wickedness that's there and which makes impossible the unconverted person to exercise free will. When it says in Philippians, uh, both to will and to work, the word for will is ethelo or thelo, to will, wanting what is best because someone is ready and willing to act. It is commonly used in the scripture of the Lord extending, get this, his best offer to the believer, wanting to birth his persuasion or his faith, that's God's, in them, to which also empowers, manifests his presence, etc. Now this is by Greek scholars 
that have written this about this particular word used for the will. And the verse taken from a part of that, ver- that word, uh, ethelo, which also conveys the idea of this will, um, is found in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 36 to 39 where we see God's in-birthing, this persuasion, this will, uh, thel is the word in Greek, um, this faith. And so in Hebrews 10, 36-39, we read these phenomenal words, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul had no pleasure in him. But we are not among those who shrink back to destruction, but those of those who have faith for the safekeeping of the soul. Now let me tell you, that faith spoken of in that place right there, that faith is a God-given faith. Only God creates things that are eternal. The person who is lost can create nothing, let alone something that's eternal. So to say that man in his unsaved, lost, wicked, wretched state has a free will because we make it nothing. Yeah, faith is nothing. Well, that's not true. Faith is something. And it's something that saves the soul. It's the, 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 through faith men are saved. That's not nothing. If it's nothing, you have no faith. <laughs> faith is something that has, is, comes from God. And in that way, it, it perseveres to the end. So in verse 5, we are the branch and only the branch. Jesus is the vine, and apart from him, we can do nothing. And like Martin Luther said, that nothing is not some small something. It's nothing. So the person, again, who's lost cannot exercise faith, which we're then told by Arminians that it is nothing. It is not nothing. It is, if it's connected to the vine, its source is in God, and in, only in the sor- as God is a source can we have salvation. Only in God as a source can we have eternal life. Can we experience an overcoming life? Jesus does not hesitate to tell his disciples again in verse 6, quote, If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown away like a branch and dries up. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. So he comes back to what he said in the beginning. False professors are known exactly for what they are by God doesn't matter what we say of ourselves. The only thing that matters is what God says of us. If we're true, we're not thrown into the fire and burned. We will produce fruit. Why? Because that fruit comes from God and it's placed within us. Yes, there is this struggle between the flesh and God, between the spirit and the flesh. And so now that a man's flesh, his will has been set free, He can, by the Spirit of God, produce fruit that is pleasing to God, or he can produce bad fruit which is not pleasing to God. And in that day, 
when we stand before the beam of seat of Christ and we are judged for our works, we will see those em- that emptiness burned up. And so in verse 7, we go on to say, on the other hand, uh, we understand to be connected to the vine and to walk in humility, resigned to do the will of God, means to ask and receive answers. You know, it's here when we look at this and we, you know, get things I'm sorry, I just, I don't believe are true. You know, God always answers. That's not what this says. What God says is that when God answers, we receive. In verse 7. In verse 7, we understand that the person who asks receives because he he asks according to the will of God. He's resigned to the will of God. Not his own will, he's walking in the Spirit. When we walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh, we resign ourselves to submit to the will of God. And when you ask anything according to the will of God, he hears it, and if he hears it, then we know that we receive the thing we asked for. So twisting what prayer is, is just giving license to walking in the flesh. God does not hear people in the flesh. He doesn't hear me. He doesn't hear you if you're a believer. It just goes by. Now, it may take a long time to come about if it's in God's will, and that doesn't mean you're not heard. But if it's never heard, it's just something asked in the flesh. Now, that sounds, well, it shouldn't sound bad at all. Because a person who asks in the flesh, he may ask it to be consumed upon his lust. A man who's walking in the flesh, according to James, you know, he doesn't ask at all because he's doing it by his own efforts and prayer doesn't become important. The person who's walking in the spirit, prayer becomes very important. And he doesn't walk in the flesh, he walks in the spirit. That brings us to verse 8. The Father is glorified only when we bear fruit. My Father, quote, is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. When do we prove that we are his disciples, the Father's disciples, Jesus' disciples, when we are bearing much fruit? The Father is glorified only when we bear fruit. We only prove to be disciples of Jesus when we are bearing the fruit, the fruit not of the flesh, as we are led by our fleshly emotions, our bragging brains, or captured by the devil. During those times, we may think we're doing well, but we're not. We're only doing well when we're bearing fruit. We're only proving to be his disciples when we are bearing fruit, the fruit of love. Truth, discernment, a love for Jesus out of proper motives. So he goes on and he says in verse 9, Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Remain in my love. Now let me tell you something. I can't, no one can comprehend these kinds of thoughts that come from Jesus. I mean, he has loved us as the Father loved him. The Father loves Jesus because Jesus is perfect. Because Jesus is coming forth from the Father and they are one. They are gloriously good, holy, perfect, righteous, just, loving. 
beyond comprehension. No, no need for mercy or all those attributes because God is, never does anything that isn't perfectly good. When the Father loves Jesus, he loves the perfectly good. So when Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. The Father does not love Jesus conditionally. There's no conditions. There's no need for unconditional love because Jesus never does anything wrong. Never does anything that's worthy of anything to be unconditional. <laughs> we are, and I'm not contradicting Jesus by saying these things. What Jesus is saying is the expression of his love, the extent of his love is like the Father loves him. It's without borders. It's, it's infinite. And so Jesus loves us like he loves, like he's loved by the Father as a son is loved by a father. We're loved by Jesus the way a son is loved by a father. I, I, this is the only way I can, and it goes so far beyond us. This is just a meager attempt at understanding the incomprehensible in, in the way that a believer is loved. We're not just loved in an unconditional way, and that unconditional idea, principle, you know, brings people to this place, oh, how incredible the love of God is. Well, that love is incredible because of the sufferings of Christ and what he had to go through on the cross in order to get us out from underneath the weight of God's own wrath because God hates sin. He hates sin. And it's God's hatred for sin that sends people to hell. See, this is the part of Calvinism that Arminians can't endure because they don't see God as being hateful in any way. Well, I hate to disappoint, but God is a hater of sin, and sinful people go to hell. And just the way he hates, uh, he loves Jacob, but he hates Esau. He hates Esau because Esau is the source of sin. The one thing that a person can create the only thing a person can create is sin because God has never created sin. He doesn't want to create sin. He hates sin with a holy hatred we can't understand. And so the idea that we send ourselves to hell because of some dubious free will, is, it's ludicrous. It's, it's not biblical. It's not correct. So we understand, number one, that Jesus loves us the way he is loved by the Father. It's an incomprehensible love. In verse 10, where he, he says this, If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. Now, the, in order to keep the Father's commandments, he had to become sin. The last thing that God wants to experience is sin. Jesus did not experience sin as a sinner. He experienced sinner as one under the consequences of sin. He took sin upon himself to bear the consequences. He didn't bear the consequences by God being removed from him. He bore the consequences of God's hatred for sin. It's seen in shame in Hebrews chapter 12, despising the shame. And so the shame is what people feel when they recognize 
that they are hated by someone else because of some wrong that they did. In this case, it's the one who matters. It's Almighty God. So Jesus experienced the shame of sin. He became sin for us. And so therein lies the love of God and in the love of Jesus in keeping the Father's commandment, go and take the place. Why? Because the Father is going to exalt the Son above all else. The, the Son gets all the glory. The Son gets glory. He doesn't get all the glory. The glory the Jesus gives the glory back to the Father. It's always about... There's no exclusiveness in, in the Trinity, in the Godhead. It's all inclusive. And just, as that way, and just that way, Jesus is including us. He's the vine, we're the branch. He's love, he's the source of love, and he gives it to us. He gives us the ability to submit to the commandments of God, even though it's not what we want to do. What we want to do is we want to go our own way and we want to submit to our own wills and our own fleshly lusts and our own selfishness and our own pride and our own immorality and, and all of it, covetousness and jealousy, all of it. But the one who keeps the commandments, how? Through the presence of the Holy Spirit, through being connected to the vine. When all of this is complete, then verse 12 comes into view these things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made complete. When the joy is made complete, and I'm seeking hard right now to experience this in my own life, when the joy is made complete, I don't have to stand in judgment. I need to be discerning. I need to discern all the time, right from wrong, in the church especially. Judgment begins in the house of God. And so we need to always be discerning these things. And so we need to, to stand obeying the commandment. How? By discernment. But once the discernment is there, once the joy is there, the expectations can be lowered as we walk in love. And as we walk in love, we keep the commandments. And as we keep the commandments, we're filled with joy. And it's a, vi a victory cycle. We, go, and we turn a vicious cycle, or God turns a vicious cycle into a victory cycle. And so Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 which I mentioned a minute ago. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's not forget this verse like so many other gems in the scripture. Like it's his will and work within us. It is his faith. How do we know that? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author. What's the author? He's the creator. He's the one who puts it down on paper. He's the one who creates. He's the one who puts it in the minds of other people. What does he put in the minds of other people? Faith. Faith becomes real, active, per, uh, perfect. It becomes presentable to God. It gives God pleasure. It's pleasurable. Why? Because he's the source. If your faith is your own free will, then how is God the source? Only in a Calvinistic form of theology, and I'm not trying to, to, to push Calvin, 
I just read the Institutes. If you haven't read the Institutes, you understand that Calvin loved God. And because he loved God, he came and he would not deny the sovereignty of God. Or that God is the source of all things, like James says. All good things. What good things? Well, here it's faith. Faith comes from the one from whom all things come. It comes from God. And therefore, in this way, we understand that our salvation is God is the source of it, not we ourselves. Go down this road and you'll find yourself more free than you ever have been before. You'll find yourself walking in the truth and the truth shall set you free. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace once again. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your righteousness and your holiness. For all the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, uh, forgiveness, all the fruits of the Spirit, I just, I give them, I praise you for these. Because you're the source. I am not the source. You are the only source. And so I pray that all those who might be listening, who might hear these things, would uh, believe them, would benefit from what the word says about Jesus being the source of all things, including our faith and our so-called free will. Dear Lord, give understanding in this matter of the, the will. Allow people to understand that God, we are nothing without God. Lord, I know we are nothing without you. And we can't exist, we can't have life in any way. I pray that you bring to the understanding of my hearers who belong to you and those who may hear this who are lost, the understanding that, Lord, apart from Christ, we're not just nothing. We, we're wicked. We despise God. We hate God. We, we're willing to do anything to destroy God, which is proved on the cross. Sorry, Lord, for having had a heart that would nail you to a cross. But, Lord, knowing that, you went anyway. And you chose those whom according to your right to do with your creation as you will, you extended yourself to suffering in imaginable, in imaginable way. And you did that because you chose to lose, to, to save some when we all should have gone to hell. I don't understand. I can't comprehend why you did such a, a, an unbelievably great thing, except that you're great. I mean, you call yourself good because, because you're humble. I mean, there are words that could be used to explain uh, who you are, which we, 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 we couldn't even comprehend. And in that lack, Lord, f fill, fill in the lack not intellectually, but in our hearts. Fill our hearts with a love for you that will cause us to be obedient so that you can be pleased, so that our, our uh, being disciples will be proved and you will be glorified. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen.